on if you're gone. Uh, so just kind of dangling that carrot out in front of you. Uh, would you go ahead and pray with me as, before we uh, jump into the Word this morning? Jesus, thank you so much for being present here today with us. Um, your presence is our peace. Your presence is our greatest joy. And we need you. We need you to underst- help us understand your word. We need you to even bring us into your presence. And that's what we crave this morning, Lord. So I pray that you meet us here and draw us closer to you. Give us fertile hearts, fertile soil in our hearts that when your word is planted that we would be able to bring forth fruit. I pray that you would bless um, my lips, um, that only your words would come out, Lord, and that what each person here today and watching online needs to hear is, is what they'll hear from you. And I pray that you'll speak through me this morning. Amen. Have you ever felt like you were a hopeless mess? Um, I frequently feel like I'm a hopeless mess when it comes to navigating my vehicles. I am what many call directionally challenged. Allow me to give you a quick illustration. I was driving home from, this was when I was in college, I was driving home from Chicago at Moody Bible Institute to Walloon Lake. And this was before I had a GPS, this was before I had a smartphone, and so I actually drove with my GPS in the passenger seat. That was my brother. And he was very good with directions, and so I trusted him to get me home. Now, truth be told, it was a very simple drive. It's like five turns to get out of Moody Bible Institute here to Walloon Lake. Um, And there's three major highways that we have to get on. And so I was driving out of Chicago, and I'm I'm driving up 94. And if you keep going on 94, it'll take you all the way over to Detroit. But you get off at this exit, and it'll get you onto 196, heading straight north to Grand Rapids. As you can see here on the map, it's a very simple drive. It really only takes about six hours. Um, That's how long it takes if I'm driving, but uh, it takes about six hours typically. And uh, so not a difficult drive. And when just as you get past the Michigan border, there is an exit you have to get off of, or you will go all the way over to Detroit. And uh, just about as we got to the Michigan border, my GPS fell asleep. And I don't know what I'm doing. This all looks familiar to me. It's Michigan. I mean, I've been living in Chicago for the last three months. So uh, I, keep, I miss the exit, and I just keep driving. And I was convincing myself, this looks familiar. This looks familiar. I swear, the exit's coming up. And my brother wakes up to a sign that says, welcome to Ann Arbor. And he goes, Ann Arbor? How in the world did you get to Ann Arbor? And I was like, I don't know. You fell asleep. And so we call home, and I was like, Dad, how do I get home from Ann Arbor? And he's like, Ann Arbor? How in the world did you get home, get to Ann Arbor? And I was like, I don't know. My GPS fell asleep. So he's like, okay, what I want you to do is pull out this ancient piece of navigation. It's called a map. It's in the side pocket of your vehicle. And uh, he begins to name off different roads to get me back to Grand Rapids. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, uh-huh, 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 yep, yep, yep. And I, I hang up, and I'm like, I forgot all that. Um... Now I'm looking at the map, and my brother's like, oh, this is really easy. What are you talking about? This is only like 17 turns. I was like, okay, fine, I trust you. And so um, we're going, and I'm looking for my next exit, and he falls asleep again. And I'm like, oh, man, must have been a wrong semester. And so <laughs> I'm looking for this exit, and I'm looking for this exit until he wakes up to see a sign that says, welcome to Detroit, home of the lions. And we're like, Detroit, how'd you get to Detroit? I was like, I don't know, you fell asleep. And so I call home, I was like, Dad, how do I get home from Detroit? And he's like, Detroit, how did you get to Detroit? I was like, I don't know, he fell asleep. 
And long story short, I turned a six-hour trip into a 10-hour trip. I was supposed to be home by dinner time. We are famished. We get home just past midnight, and my parents are like waiting for us with sort of upset, but sort of like laughing at us kind of face. You know what I mean? We walk in the door, and they're like, like, okay, we're gonna, we know you feel terrible, but we really want to make a joke right now. And um, I feel often like a hopeless mess when it comes to navigating. And, uh, and maybe, maybe you have some other area of your life, you're like, man, I feel like a hopeless mess. But the interesting thing about um, the time of year that we find ourselves in, the end of the year, this is the end of 2018. You know, 2019 is less than a week away. And we get to this time of year, and oftentimes we're reflecting back on the year we just had, we're, we're reflecting on the New Year's resolutions we just made, or we made, you know, 363 days ago, and we begin to wonder if next year's just going to be the same. Like, okay, I feel like I find myself in the same spot that I found myself last year, that I found myself last year, that I found myself last year. I wonder if anything's going to be different. And we begin to wonder, man, I don't know if I'm a hopeless mess or not because I don't know how to make any sort of significant changes. And I've entitled my message today, Not Beyond Hope. Not Beyond Hope. Because it's not like we don't want things to be different, right? Like many of us already have 17 resolutions that are going to ensure that next year is going to be different. But I think a lot of times when we're really honest with ourselves, we actually wonder if next year will be different. We're like, I hope it will be. I want it to be. But will it? And so we get to this time of year and and we're wondering, man, I I don't know if next year is going to be different or not. And so we begin to resign ourselves to kind of the same old, same old. We begin to resign ourselves to the similar disappointments and the setbacks and the pains and the heartaches that we experienced last year. We begin to go like, you know what, it's probably going to happen next year and it's okay. Like the pain I'm going to experience next year is okay. The, the disappointments I'm going to experience next year. And we begin to resign ourselves to this. And not only that, I think sometimes we begin to think, man, I'm, I must just deserve these. And, and I can't imagine a life without them. And, and slowly, uh, moment by moment, year by year, we begin to give up hope of a new life, of a, of a life being better, of life being different. And we begin to give up hope. And sometimes we think we're beyond hope. Sometimes when we look at where we find ourselves in life, we actually begin to wonder if we're beyond hope. And the beautiful story that we're going to examine this morning in Scripture uh, puts us in the middle of a scene that feels just as hopeless. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to jump into the book of Ruth. And actually this morning, I'm going to walk with you through the entire book of Ruth. So buckle up your seatbelts. The book of Ruth is actually written a whole lot like a stage play. It's got um, acts, it's got character dialogue, it's got scene changes. It's a a drama-packed love story. In fact, it's actually an interracial love story between a Moabite woman and a Jewish man. It's not only that, it's a love story between two very broken people. This is, this is a beautiful, drama-packed love story that we're going to jump into in the book of Ruth. Um, and so, 
each chapter kind of serves as a different act in the play. And so we're going to jump into chapter 1, act 1, and I call act 1 an unusual friendship, an unlikely friendship. Um, So if you're with me in Ruth chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And so Naomi was left with her two sons. And these two took Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ugh. This is how Act 1 opens. Uh, You've got famine in the land, you've got a multinational economic disaster, um, and so Elimelech, wanting to look for opportunity for his family, takes his wife and they move to Moab. Now, before we get into the rest of how Act 1 opens, Moab was not anybody's bucket list of places to live. Like, nobody wanted to move to Moab. Moab was, moving to Moab was kind of like your family getting, just imagine your family getting hit so hard that you decided to look for opportunity and pack up your family and move to inner city Detroit or like the projects of Las Vegas or Juarez, Mexico to like look for better opportunity. Like that's how desperate they were. That's how bad they got hit. And not only that, Moab's history with Israel and, and the history between Moabite people and Israelite people is really, really screwed up. Like there's a lot of not good when it comes to how Moabite people related to Israelite people. Let me just give you a quick synopsis here. The, the history between Moab and Israel could be uh, defined with, by three terms, conflict, compromise, and condemnation. Um, really quick, I'm just going to give you a few references to illustrate this. Um, Moab and Israel, first of all, their history is filled with conflict. Numbers 22 to 24, if you remember, um, the Moabites enlisted Balaam to call down curses on Israel. Right? God delivers Israel from Moab and their oppression, Judges 3 through Ehud, the left-handed man assassinating King Eglon, the really big fat guy, and the dirt came out when Ehud, yeah, it was a gross story. First uh, Samuel 14, Saul assumes kingship and he fights against Israel's enemies, including Moab. Second Samuel 8, King David defeats the Moabites. Second Kings 3, the Moabites rebel against Israel again. Second Kings 13, there's this history of regular conflict between Moab and Israel. Second Chronicles 20, amazing story. Um, God actually delivers Israel out of Moabite oppression through Jehoshaphat, who literally just leads Israel in songs of praise, and God defeats all of the Moabites. So there's, there's conflict constantly throughout the history of Moab's and Israel's relationship. Not only that, there's tons and tons of compromise so actually in Genesis 19, a little boy named Moab, who's the father of the Moabite people, was born from the incest of Lot and his daughter. So everyone was like, ew, Moab, ugh, stay away from him, he's gross. Um, 
And that's how Moab came into being. Numbers 25, there's this sexual... After um, Balaam cursed, well, was called upon to curse Israel, and then God wouldn't let him through the talking donkey, you turn around and you look, and, and Israel just went back and started committing sexual immorality with the Moabite people. Judges 10, again, Israel goes after Moab's gods. 1 Kings 11, uh, Solomon, who's called to lead the nation in worship, actually builds an altar to Chemosh, which is uh, the chief god of the Moabites. Nehemiah 13, uh, he dis- Nehemiah discovers that the community of Israelites that still exist after their exile in Babylon um, has turned around and started committing spiritual idolatry with Moab's gods and intermarrying with the Moabites. So, so there's constant instances of compromise when it comes to Israel and how they related to Moab. And not only that, it's not just conflict and compromise, but there is frequent condemnation from God on Moab. Um, in Deuteronomy 23, God actually forbids any Moabites from entering the temple. Um, nobody could worship uh, among the Moabites. Psalm 60, verse 8, God actually said, Moab is my wash basin. Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 9, both prophets just bring down words of condemnation against Moab. Ezekiel 25, God says, I'll execute judgments on Moab. Amos 2, I'll send a fire upon Moab. Zephaniah 2, Moab will become like Sodom. Conflict, compromise, just condemnation. And Elimelech packs up and moves his family to Moab. And, and Elimelech didn't live in a ginormous metropolis. He lived in Bethlehem, a very small town. Everybody knew that Elimelech and Naomi, they're moving to Moab. And everybody got it because of how desperate everybody felt. Like They were in desperate times. And they were holding on to hope beyond hope, to to look for opportunity instead of the current famine that they were in. And I think similar to many of the famines we experience, oftentimes we we go to that land of conflict, we go to that land of compromise, we go to that land of condemnation to look for opportunity. But what we're quickly going to discover in the text is that the land of opportunity very soon turned into the land of brokenness, right? Elimelech dies. Naomi's two sons, they marry Moabite women. And then her two sons die. And that's how the story starts. Like, this is the opening few verses of this love story. It's a really bleak outlook. So what we're given at the outset is three women who are culturally marginalized, they're widows, so they have no husband to protect them or provide for them or stand up for them. Um, They are Moabites, people of compromise. They have no rights, no land to claim, no family name to carry on. And, And what we learn from history is that your family name the line that you carried on and the land that your family owned were actually the two main things that made up your individual and communal identity. And they had none of these. They were at the deadest of dead ends. This was a really bad spot to be in. Like if you were writing a story of all the bad things that could happen to somebody, like you would have written the book of Ruth, uh, the first five verses. Like it was terrible. And they have a very bleak outlook. And so Naomi gets to this point 
in the story, and she's like, man, this is not working out. And I heard that maybe something's going on a little bit better back in Bethlehem, back in Israel. So she decides, I'm going to go back to my homeland. And she says to her daughters-in-law, daughter-in-laws, daughters, we'll see. Um, She says to them, you know what, you're young enough, go back to the city that you came from in Moab, marry somebody else, get a family line, you know, have some land, like, you're young enough, but if you stay with me, I I can't, even if I had sons right now, would you wait around for them to get older? Like, it's going to be better for you. Go back to Moab. And so we pick up in verses 12 and 13. This is what Naomi says. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should stay, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. But the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So in this moment, Naomi feels the bitterness. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Have you ever felt like the situations in your life are uniquely lining up against you? Have you ever felt the bitterness? This is what Naomi is feeling. Do you know what it feels like to be dismissed or fired or passed up for somebody else? Uh, Do you know what it's like for everybody else around you to be getting their opportunity, but time and time again, opportunity just seems to to pass you by? Do you you know what it's like to lose a loved one, a a spouse, or a child? I mean, some of you are sitting here this morning in the same seats that you've been sitting in year after year, and last year at this time, there was somebody sitting next to you. you. Do you know what it's like to be diagnosed with a disease or to go through the bitterness or the pain or the loss or the hardship or the trial. This is what Naomi's feeling. She's feeling the bitterness. Or, or maybe, maybe you thought your life would have turned out differently by now. You're like, I, I was expecting to be at this point in life, and I'm not, and I'm feeling the bitterness. Or, or maybe you're wondering, man, where are my kids? Where is my spouse, where's my moment in the sun? And in verse 13, Naomi's saying, this tastes really bitter. I don't like it. She feels the bitterness. But let's keep going because something happens in, inside of Naomi. Verse 13, she says, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept, and Oprah clung to her mother-in-law, but or Oprah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, Don't urge me to leave you to return from following you, for where you go, I'll go, and where you lodge, I'll lodge, and your people will be my people. And where you die, I will die. Sukasa is Mikasa, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if nothing, anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, hey, is that not Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Something happens between verse 13 
in verse 20. Because in verse 13, Naomi says, this is bitter. This, this, I feel bitterness. By the time you get to verse 20, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which translated means bitter. She says, call me bitter. Something happens in Naomi because in verse 13 she says, this feels bitter. In verse 20 she says, I am bitter. Verse 13, she's struggling with bitterness. Verse 20, she's let the bitterness own her. See, there's a difference between owning your brokenness and letting your brokenness own you. Between saying, I'm struggling with whatever it is in in the brokenness and saying, I am my brokenness. And the unique challenge that exists in your heart is that when you taste the bitterness and you go through the hard times of life to not let the bitterness own you, to not embrace the bitterness toward God, toward your background, your, your family situation, your current situation, toward that person who was supposed to be there for you but left you feeling abandoned. And the book of Ruth is, what we're going to see, is about holding on to hope when the situation seems hopeless, when the brokenness seems to have overwhelmed, when the bitterness seems to have seeped into every part of life. You might feel like you're a dead end, at a dead end, but, but God is not done with you yet. And what we're going to discover in the book of Ruth is that nobody is beyond hope. No person is past redemption. No situation is unsalvageable. Nobody is beyond hope. God is not done with Naomi or with Ruth yet. But the thing about Naomi is that in her current state, she is so bitter that she's let the bitterness blind her. Because that's, that's what bitterness will do. Bitterness will blind you to God. It'll blind you to God's goodness. It'll blind you to God's peace. It'll prevent you from experiencing and letting in what God wants to usher into your heart through the difficulty. Bitterness blinds you to that and kind of closes off that door. And that's what Naomi is experiencing right now. All she can see is how bad it is for her. And that's actually how um, how we get to the end of chapter 1. Orpah leaves, Naomi stays, they return back to Bethlehem, and they get there, and Naomi is feeling the bitterness. But remember, when Naomi and Elimelech left 10 years prior... They were looking for opportunity. They were looking for hope. They were talking about maybe we'll have a family there. Maybe we'll strike it rich. Maybe we'll get a good crop and come back with lots of harvest. And so as the town remembers this, it was only 10 years ago and it's not a big town. They're coming back and they're like, hey, is that Naomi? She's like a little bit older, but I think that's Naomi. And everyone's kind of buzzing around like, what's happened? Like, what happened with Naomi? Did she find what she was looking for? And she comes back and she's like, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Right, like, I'm bitter. I didn't get my moment in the sun. I didn't get, you know, kids. I didn't get a harvest. 
All I've got coming back is this Moabite woman coming back with me. Like That's what Naomi's feeling like. End of scene, act over, curtain closes, and you're like, ugh, how's this going to get better? And so act two opens up with two widows who have no rights, no land to claim, no family name to carry on, no protection. They have no rights. That's how Act 2 opens. And, and Naomi is just staring at the bitterness. She's feeling it all. But Ruth, I love Ruth's response. Check this out. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of her husband, Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, go, my daughter. Ruth gets up and she does the next thing. Ruth's feeling the same experiences in life. She lost her husband too. She's got this grumpy mother-in-law and she's going to a land that she does not belong in. Where nobody of her country is looked on favorably. Ruth's feeling it too. But Ruth, instead of sulking in her plight and just bemoaning her bitterness, she gets up and she does the next thing. And I think sometimes when you're feeling the weight of the brokenness, when when things are falling apart, you can get up and you can do the next thing. What is the next thing? Not like, what's the rest of the story? How How do I get the whole picture back together? How do I put all the broken pieces back together? What's the next thing? And sometimes maybe it's just get out of bed, right? Call a friend. Take a shower. Go for a walk. Call a a counselor or call someone here at church and say, I need help. Apply for that job. What is the next thing that you can do? And I'll be honest, there are days when I don't even want to do the next thing. And all I can do is reach up my tiny hand to God's big hand and, and, and trust that he's going to pick me up because I can't do it myself. And sometimes I just got to put on a worship playlist. I just listen to, I'm, I'm still in bed, but I got to listen to some music, right? Or I feel like I'm still in bed. In my head, I'm sleeping in bed all day, no matter where I go. And I just got to put on a worship tunes, you know what I mean? Or, or I just got to get up and get out into the sun, sunshine i got to go for a walk. What's, what's the next thing? And Ruth gets up and does the next thing. And I, and I love this because I think what it highlights here, and especially the way that the author tells the story, is that God loves desperate situations because God loves desperate people. People who will do whatever it takes to reach out their tiny hand to him and trust him. And so Ruth gets up and she does the next thing. And the interesting thing about what she does is she goes to a field to gather the corners of the harvest field. And this actually refers back to a provision that God made in the law for people who who were running on hard times, the poor people and people who weren't from Israel. Um, In Leviticus 19, what God says in verse 9 and 10, he says to the Israelites, when you reap your harvest of your land, do not reap your field right up until its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, the things that fell down behind you. And you will not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, 
you shall leave them to the poor and to the sojourner. I am the Lord. And so, and so this is the provision made for people just like Ruth who are in a hard time. This is our merciful God looking out for people who need his provision. And so she gets up and she's like, I can do that at least. And she goes out to this field that just happens to be Boaz's field. And I, I love this because you can totally see God working in this, right? We get to actually see God's perspective in this story. We're not, we're not reading a story from Ruth's perspective or from Naomi's perspective or Boaz's. We're, we're actually getting to see this whole picture. And I love how this happens because it's not like Naomi was scheming and set up Ruth and Boaz on this blind date, right? It wasn't that, like they were just meeting up to discuss the future of their economic survival and how they were going to bring redemption to the cosmos like they had no idea what was about to happen but we see God kind of moving them together and so we pick up later on in chapter two and Boaz is going out into his field and he's greeting his workers he's like the Lord bless you and the Lord bless you and the Lord bless you and he pulls someone close to him he's like who is that woman over there and he, you know his worker begins to tell about Ruth and Naomi and their story and why Ruth is here and and what she's looking for and, you know, the fact that she, how she's feeling and everything that happened to them and what she's done for her mother-in-law coming back. And, and so Boaz goes up to Ruth and he is impressed with her. And check out verse 8. We're going to read verse 8 here through verse uh, 13, I think. Verse 12. Uh, then Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Don't go glean in another field or even leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you would take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz says to her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and your mother and your native land and you came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And, and so Boaz sees what has happened to Ruth. And how life just kind of fell apart for her and the character that was revealed in her life. Because character is that thing that comes oozing out of you when life presses you on every side with tests and trials. And when life fell apart for Ruth, Boaz saw the character that was revealed in Ruth. And what he discovered was she was beautiful on the inside as well. And, and Boaz is first, I think, attracted to Ruth's character. Moms and dads, that'll preach to your kids. Uh, so he began to shower Ruth with kindness, and I, I just imagine this in my sanctified imagination, kind of read it between the lines, but he gives Ruth a bunch of stuff, which we read about in the text, and she goes home with all this grain and, and harvest that Boaz had kind of heaped upon her, and I just imagine she's in the kitchen, and she's kind of like, now she has some stuff to make bread or whatever, and she's, she's making the food, and she's kind of like putting her elbows into it, but kind of bopping while she's doing it, you know what I mean? She's got a tune humming in her head, and... Um, her cheeks are a little bit rosy, and, and Naomi comes around the corner. She's like, what's his name? 
You know what I mean? And uh, she, she begins to inquire, like, Ruth, what's going on? Why are you so happy? And so Ruth just spills the beans and she tells about this really amazing and generous and beautiful man named Boaz that she met in the field and, and how kind he was to her and that seemed like he was kind of into her. And, and so Naomi kind of begins to get the picture and she's like, oh, mm, I'm scheming. She's playing this not so subtle matchmaker. I'm sure you guys don't know any moms like that. And um, <laughs> Naomi even says, I love this, verse 22, she, she says, um, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out to, with his young woman, lest in another field you might be assaulted. Sure, Naomi, uh, that's what you're doing. Um, she's like trying to get Ruth, like, no, stay in Boaz's field. And so there's this like, if this was a movie, there'd be like a little bit of this twinkle uh, romantic music in the background. You're like, oh man, what's got to happen next? And then the curtain closes again. And you're like, no. And there's this romantic tension in the air. And you're like, what is going to happen? And then between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's about two to three weeks that elapsed. Okay, so there's this big gap in between. And we pick up in chapter 3, act 3. And I like to call this one a scandalous proposition, because right at the beginning of Act 3, Naomi launches into Phase 2 of Operation Get Ruth Hitched. You know what I mean? Like, I'm pretty sure I know some moms who have read from this playbook. And so she's like, okay, what can I do to get Ruth into the arms of Boaz? And so we're going to read verses 1 to 4 here. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your smell good and go down to the threshing floor. And do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And so Ruth says, all that you say I will do. Now, we learn from history about the threshing floor that this was a place where during the harvest, the men of the city would actually camp out at the threshing floor so that they could maximize the daylight hours that they had to bring in the harvest. Sun would rise, they'd get to work, sun would set, and they're done. But in between the time when they were done working and when they went to bed and it's dark out, there's just a massive amount of dudes sitting around, and we learn from history that there was usually tons of partying and drinking, and oftentimes they would even bring in prostitutes into these man camps down at the threshing floor during harvest time. And so what we're beginning to realize is Naomi's actually asking Ruth to go into this relatively compromising situation, right? So, but Naomi says, no, 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 it's going to be good. And so Ruth goes down and she does it, and she kind of hides until the darkness covers her, and she goes up, and, and Boaz is just smashed. He's been partying, um, and he goes and lays down after he finishes eating and drinking, and she uncovers his feet, and she's like, yeah. he doesn't do anything. He's just like passed out, so she sleeps there, and Boaz wakes up somewhere in the middle of the night, probably with a hangover and freezing cold feet, and we pick up in verse 8. Well, verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, uh, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, what Ruth just did was she proposed to Boaz. Now, I'll explain why in a second, but just understand the scandalous nature of this. It's kind of shocking today. I mean, it's not, it's not like you haven't heard of it, but it's a little bit more surprising today when a woman proposes to a man. Think about how insanely scandalous it would have been 3,000 years ago when women had no social power and no rights and no voice in society to propose to a man. This is a very scandalous proposition that Ruth gives to Boaz. But what she does is she says, you are a kinsman redeemer, which actually refers back to another provision God made in the law in Leviticus chapter 25, where basically God says, um, if one of your family relatives loses their land, you could actually buy it back for them and then, you know, give it back to them. Or if one of your family relatives has no sons, right? So they can't carry on a family line. Their family name no longer remains. If your if you're family relative, you can redeem that family line. And this is how you would do it. You would marry the widow along with whatever family you had or, you know, preferably if you didn't have a family. This is why it works better. So Boaz is this single guy and so he's able to marry a widow and then all of his inheritance would go through that family. Instead of his inheritance presumably going through his own biological kids or his wife or whatever, his family line now is able to go through this other family who's a close relative so that they have the family name to carry on. And thus their family land or their family name could be redeemed and they could preserve their identity within their community. And this is a gracious act that God is giving. And, and so... Ruth goes to Boaz and she says, you are a kinsman redeemer and I'm here to be redeemed. You know what I mean? Like she's proposing to him. But this not only was scandalous, but it came at a great cost because you would either have to sacrifice your own family line or you'd have to pay for the field. Either way, there's a financial or a communal cost that you would have to pay but Boaz is at a place in his life where he's like, I can do it, and I will do it. But there's this one massive hurdle I have to clear. There's somebody else who's actually a closer relative. And the option has to go to him first. And Ruth's like, oh no. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just kind of fell in love with you, and now there's somebody else I have to go through first. And, and so he's like, you know what? I'm going to go talk to him tomorrow, but um, why don't you go home? And he gives her tons of grain and other gifts and that kind of stuff. And she makes her way out of this man camp at night, um, early in the morning, I mean. And um, she's trying to do it, kind of walk this walk of shame without anybody noticing, because it was kind of a scandalous thing for her to be there. So she gets home. We don't know what Boaz is going to do. We're like, oh boy, now there's this complication in the story. What's going to happen? end of the act, and we're like, ah, oh, there's even more tension. Like, this is an amazing story, and we don't know what Boaz is going to do, but the next day, in the beginning of chapter 4, we find him at the town gate. And this is the opening scene 
of Act 4, and I'm going to call this one a beautiful redemption. So we see Boaz at the beginning of the scene at the town gate. Now, the town gate was just a place where decisions were made, proclamations were given, um, major rights were transferred, discussions happened. It was, it was kind of like, um, like a city council of today. And so Boaz meets his relative at a, the city gate, and we pick up in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. And they sat down, and he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. And she's selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the relative says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz is like, but wait, there's more. There's a woman uh, you not only have to redeem Naomi's land, but you've got to redeem her family line through her daughter-in-law. And the guy kind of goes, wait, what? You're trying to sell me on something? Like, I'm good with my family. Like, I like my family. I want my family line, all my inheritances to go to them. I think I'm good. I'll pass. And Boaz is like, good, because I will redeem her. You know what I mean? And so he's ready to go. Uh, he makes this legal transition. He's now legally able to redeem Ruth and Naomi's field. And we pick up in verse 11. He does all of this. He says to Ruth, hey, you know, let's get married because we can actually do this now. And, and so verse 11, then all the people were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. They're at their wedding. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of his offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful picture of redemption, that what was hopeless now became hope-filled. But if the story ended here, it would just be a story of two broken people rescuing each other and living happily ever after. It would make for a really good Hallmark movie. right? You read through this story, and it's almost like as the tension is drawn out, um, there's this terrible tragedy and these two sufferers, and their love that binds them together kind of weakly salvages the great expression of how much weight of tragedy they're feeling. And the love that they find at the end is kind of like this bow that neatly ties together just a bunch of really bad misfortunes. End of story. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's cute. Like, they're suffering together now. But I, I read through Ruth, and I go, why is Ruth in the Bible? What about the book of Ruth makes it worthy to be part of the canon of Scripture? What about Ruth makes it worthy to be alongside the likes of Genesis and the Psalms and Romans? Like, why is Ruth in the Bible? And I think Ruth is in the Bible because of how the story carries on. Because the story doesn't actually end with Boaz and Ruth. 
The story continues on. We, we get to verse 13 and it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, that his name may be renowned in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, here it is, a son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David, who we know to be king of Israel. And the beautiful thing about this story is that even in hopelessness, there is redemption beyond the end of hope. Even when Naomi and Boaz and Ruth reached the end of all earthly hope, their cosmic redemption was still to come. Track with me here. The amazing and miraculous thing about this story is that God used two broken people to carry on his family line that would eventually bring on the likes of King David through whom we know would come Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer of the world. This story is not primarily about Boaz's redemption of Ruth. This story is primarily about God's redemption of mankind and how he used two broken people to bring redemption to planet earth. In other words, nobody, nobody is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond hope. No, no situation can't be salvaged. No person is past redemption. Nobody is beyond hope. Nobody. And in the few final moments we have, I just want to draw out a couple implications really quick um, from this amazing story. First, we see that no situation is beyond hope. Like even in the bleakest of bleak situations, it can be turned around for the redemption of the world. Like This was the deadest of dead ends, but even at that dead end, it became a pathway for life and for healing and for joy and for restoration. God has not given up on you. No situation is beyond hope. The second thing we see is that you cannot underestimate what your sovereign God is up to. You think you know what God is doing? You think you can tell God what He should be doing? You think you can be God to God? He used a multinational economic disaster that led to a multinational depression and the death of a spouse and two kids, all to bring Naomi into the arms of Boaz. Don't give up on the plan of your God. You have no idea. All you're doing is looking at the, the back of the tapestry and all you see is the frayed ends and the incomplete picture. But someday God's going to turn it around and you're going to be able to see the complete picture and you're going to stagger back in amazement saying, I had no idea you're up to something so amazing and beautiful and grand 
Boaz and Ruth had no earthly conception that they were part of the grand narrative of Scripture in which they find themselves, that they were part of God's redemption story to bring redemption and rescue to the entire world. How could they? Maybe you'll only see it through the eyes of eternity, but you can't underestimate what your sovereign God is up to. The third thing that I notice here is that we have a God who works primarily through brokenness. The only other place in Scripture that we pick up Ruth's story is in Matthew chapter 1, which we read recently through the Christmas season. And Matthew chapter 1 is a list of, of the family tree of Jesus, tracking from Abraham all the way down to Jesus to prove that he's in the lineage of, uh, of what he should be as the Messiah. And in this list, we find loads of messed up people, like Boaz's mom, who, by the way, was Ruth the prostit- or Rahab the prostitute. We, we find Ruth the Moabite woman. We find David's adultery with Bathsheba. We find Judah's incest with Tamar. Like loads of messed up people are in Jesus' genealogy. And this is the way that God works. That he brings grace through brokenness. And I think the, the upside down paradox of the cross of Jesus Christ is that the thing that you're trying to avoid most in your life, that point of pain or brokenness or bitterness or despair, is the point at which God is at most at work in your life. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. He's working through your brokenness. He's bringing a seemingly irredeemable situation into a place of hope. I mean, think about Boaz. Was he motivated or obligated by the law to redeem Ruth? No, he was motivated by love. And just in the same way, your Savior Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, came not obligated by law, but motivated by love. He moved aside heaven and earth and he drained his veins to make you his own. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. Look to the one who is redeeming your situation. Look to the one who sees you and knows you. You feel like your situation is beyond hope. You feel like you're about to hit a dead end. Like look to the Savior. No situation is beyond hope. You can't underestimate what your sovereign God is up to. God works primarily through broken people. Nothing can stop our Savior, not even death. God did not abandon Jesus to his manger on Christmas, to his grave on Good Friday, and he will not abandon you to yours. Trust it. Bank on it. Build your life on it. Believe it. That nobody, not even the person that you see in the mirror, nobody's beyond hope. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for redeeming us, for being our Redeemer. Thank you for providing a way and being the great lover of our souls. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know the hope that you have for us, that you would help us to believe and bank on and trust in the word that you've given us. God, would you speak to us in our situations this morning. Amen.